Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. Hey everybody, how are you? Isn't it a beautiful fall? Um, I love October. It's just, uh, just the best. In June, we're like, when's it going to be summer? And then in October, we're like, eh, it's fall, but it actually feels kind of like summer too. So it's just great. And one of the things that we've been enjoying is we, uh, after I preach, we, we uh, record a podcast. And it's called Beyond Sunday, and you can hear the podcast, which every weekend it takes you um, beyond where the sermon was and all the stuff that we kind of leave on the cutting room floor for the sermon, then we get to talk about on Beyond Sunday. So uh, we'll be talking about uh, the Lord's Prayer with this Beyond Sunday, and so you can access that wherever you uh, pick up your podcasts. And we've been enjoying this series, God Is. And my friends are visiting us from Dallas today, and they go, oh, our pastor's doing this great series. I go, really, what's it about? He says, it's called God Is. And I don't know how this works, but this happens all the time. Somehow, uh, either we're all copying each other, or the Holy Spirit has something to do with what he once said uh, to uh, the world. Uh, and so we've been doing, we did, we did the Father Is, the Spirit Is, and now we're doing Jesus Is. And we're doing the whole thing out of the book of Luke. And today we're in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke, where one of Jesus' students asked him to teach them to pray like he prayed. And it's not that these guys didn't grow up with, with great prayers. The Jewish faith has tremendous prayers. Uh, but they noticed that Jesus didn't pray those prayers so much. Uh, he prayed in his own way. And they also noticed that his prayers really replenished him after a long day of being jostled and pushed and by very demanding crowds, Jesus would get away and go to the Father. And when he came back, it was like he had already slept. He had already been uh, replenished. And so they said, would you teach us to pray uh, like you pray? And Jesus was happy to do it. He said, pray like this. I'm the Heavenly Father, your name is holy. Uh, send your kingdom to earth and do your will uh, on earth uh, just like it is in heaven. And provide for us each day everything we need for today. And forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of those uh, that, have, that have really uh, hurt us and sinned against us. And lead us away from temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So you, can, you notice I paraphrase the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and I think that's an important thing to do, uh, to say it in your own words. But really what Jesus gave them was five short sentences in a foolproof prayer. You just can't go wrong praying the prayer that Jesus said, if you pray this way, listen, I know the Father, I talk to him all the time, and this prayer will get results. And that's the power of this prayer over any other prayer, because we don't have any other prayers that God himself taught us. We've got some great prayers in the Bible, uh, but this one is the only one where we've been personally coached by the Son of God about how to speak to our Heavenly uh, Father. So we're going to spend the rest of our time today unpacking the beauty and the power 
of the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to learn to pray it in such a way that's different than, say, maybe the monotone chanting way that you learned in church. Um, I don't know about you, but my memories of praying the Lord's Prayer uh, aren't necessarily that powerful or life-giving. Uh, in my experience, when we all prayed it together, it was this weird religious chant we all clicked into perfect unison whenever the pastor would say, and now we will pray the prayer of the Lord taught us to pray, our Father, pause, who art in heaven, pause, hallowed be thy name, pause, you know. We'd lower our eyes, we'd lower our voices, and kind of reminiscent of Eeyore, uh, we would recite this, this powerful prayer in a non-powerful way, including 16, count them, 16 pauses that we all knew uh, how to interject. And then we would get to that, that dangerous uh, trespasses, debts intersection, and we'd have to listen for, you know, what, how, what are we doing in this church? Uh, but uh, somehow, religion made this, this powerful prayer into something uh, less than that. And not only that, religion has taken the Lord's Prayer and turned it into punishment. Uh, if you're a Catholic, you know this, that you go to confession, and then as penance, what do you do? You do 20 Hail Marys and 20 Our Fathers. And uh, I mean, and I actually didn't know this. I grew up Protestant, and not that we prayed the Lord's Prayer very much. Uh, we prayed everything but the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and the Pentecostals, so we sometimes prayed in English. Uh, but... Uh, I found out from my buddy Zeke Carpio that the Lord's Prayer was not something pleasurable to him. It was used in punishment. This one time, eighth grade, Zeke uh, stole a whole brick of blackjack firecrackers from a fireworks stand. I don't know how he did it, but he definitely had stolen them. And, uh, and we were going to blow those babies off to celebrate our nation's independence. Praise the Lord. And, uh, but his mom sabotaged the whole thing because she found the firecrackers and knew that he didn't have the money for them. So she took him, and then she took him to confession. And he went and saw the priest on the 4th of July. And, uh, and at the end of that conversation where he confessed his sin, he had to do Hail Marys and Our Fathers for just about the rest of the day. And uh, so I, just, I always wonder how Jesus feels about that, you know. Uh, you're really in trouble, so pray this prayer uh, really fast, over and over. Uh, so let's take a fresh look at it, and let's let it become for us what Christ originally intended. And then there's those of us who don't know the Lord's Prayer. So many of us that are coming to Cornerstone. This is your first church experience. We're aware of that. So today we're going to teach you the Lord's Prayer. Isn't that cool? You're going to learn today a prayer you didn't know, and you've kind of wondered what those people were mumbling, and you're going to learn it now, and you're going to learn why it's so awesome. Sounds cool, right? Aren't you glad you came to church? Seriously, I'm glad you came too because it's really, when I'm up here talking and no one's listening, I mean, I would still do it, but it's not as fun. All right, here we go. Our Father. Excellent. All right, so this is how they translated the prayer into English in the 1600s. Uh, we actually don't talk like this anymore, uh, but this is how I learned it in the 1960s. Uh, but it's always felt to me like a kind of a formal way of addressing God. And uh, when, we, when we read the original language and what Jesus was presenting, he was doing the opposite. He was saying, I want you to address God in an informal way. When you translate this directly out of the language that Jesus used, and then you put it into Greek, and then you put it into English, it comes out, our Abba. And Abba just means dad or daddy. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful way to start a prayer. Uh, now, 
if the, if the priest says, now we're going to pray the prayer the Lord taught us to pray, and you go, Daddy? I mean, everybody's going to look at you. But you're actually being more biblically correct. Uh, and, and any dad in the room would, would agree that it's not disrespectful to be informal. Like, I'm a dad, and if my kids came to me, you know, oh, Father, oh, Father, how, how was thy day today? Uh, you know, I'd be like, are we in Downton Abbey? What just happened? Uh, so Jesus told his followers that God wanted to be referred to as our dad. He doesn't want to be thought of in, in stiff theological terms. He wants to be thought of in warm, intimate uh, family uh, affection. And so when we say our father, it's, we're saying, I get it. You're my father. You're not distant. You're not scary. I'm not afraid of you. Uh, I know I can approach you through Jesus and call you um, our father. And this is wonderful, but it would have been a big adjustment for Jesus' original fathers because they had been taught the opposite since synagogue school, that God was big and holy and somewhat uh, distant. Just a few miles out uh, uh, east of Jerusalem is the Judean wilderness, and that's where the Essenes lived. And the Essenes were copying the scrolls and making sure they were accurate and they were passed down. But anytime the Essene scholars would, would realize that they have to copy the name of God, they would push back, get up, and wash their hands because the name of God was so holy. And even to this day, if you know an Orthodox Jew, you may have a friend who doesn't ever say the name of God because it is, is considered too holy for these human lips to say. Well, as beautiful as that thought is, the holiness of God, it's not what Jesus intended in the New Covenant. Because in the New Covenant, Jesus says, I want you to come close to God. And the Apostle Paul is one who taught us even more about this when he said, it's because we're his children. Because we're his children, God has sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts. And our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. Say that with me. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And notice, we're not supposed to address him as my father. We're supposed to address him as our father, as if to say, I get it. There are other kids in this family. I'm not just here to get my own needs met. Uh, we're all part of a big family father, and, uh, and, and we come to you. Even when I pray the Lord's Prayer alone, I still say, our father, or our Abba, because I, I'm recognizing that I'm not an only child. All right, our father who art in heaven. What's the next line? You know this. That's awesome. Now, if you want to freshen up the language, you could say, uh, our Father in heaven, your name is holy. That's what it means. Your name is holy. And holy means set apart. And name in, the, in this context means everything that you're capable of. Your reputation is your name. So your reputation, God, is holy. Your reputation is, is different than any other God, than any other power. You're not a force. You're a dad. And you are amazing. And you really are beyond human comprehension. That, there's no one like you. That's why we say you're holy and set apart. And that's why the angels in heaven surround the throne constantly singing, Holy, 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 Lord God uh, Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And holy feels like a church word, but what it really means is you are special. You are, are different. And so who you are puts us in the right frame of mind to ask you for things that we need. But before we ask you for anything we need, we recognize who you are. And this is important whether you're praying the Lord's Prayer or any prayer, not to jump right into, hey, God, if you wouldn't mind, today here's what I need. Because when we do that over and over, we're treating God in such a way that doesn't recognize who he is before we ask for things. He wants us to ask for things. 
But he wants us to dial the phone in the right way. And he wants us to, to, to say, he wants us to say, he wants us to hear ourselves say, I'm speaking to God here. So I'm not just like, hey, Lord, if you don't mind. You know, it's like, can I get a parking place? You know, it's just like, seriously, you're talking to God here, the God of the universe. And so that's supposed to activate your faith to hallow his name. All right, here we go. Your kingdom. Keep going. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Now, see, when I, it wasn't until later in my Christian life that I had any understanding of what I was praying when I prayed, your kingdom come to earth. Uh, When I first started praying this prayer, I viewed God's kingdom as something that would come later, the second coming of Christ. So I thought I was praying, Jesus, come back. Jesus, return. Um, But now I know this phrase is as much about the here and now as it is about the future. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, before we ask for anything else, we're asking the Father to bring Christ's kingdom to earth now. We're asking God to invade our small, uh, out-of-control earth with heavenly methods, heavenly motivations, heavenly provision, heavenly rules, heavenly holiness, heavenly mercy, heavenly justice, everything about heaven to come to earth. Because we live in a world run by human beings. And some of these very powerful people are corrupt. And they've been given power over the rest of us. So by teaching us to pray this way, Jesus is saying, ask the Father that these leaders would manage earth like heaven is managed because it's much better. Ask the Father for his will to be done on earth exactly like his will is done in heaven to bring, to bring those methods and those way of thinking here. But not just for our leaders. Christ made it very clear right before he left that he intended to bring heaven to earth through us, his followers. So when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, we are in effect signing on to that initiative to be what the Apostle Paul called Christ's ambassadors. So whatever influence we have, whatever place at the table we have in an organization, a family, a company, a school, a neighborhood, if we've been given influence, if we've been given resources, we understand that those were given to us so that we would represent Christ well in that group of people, and that we would use our influence so that if things are being done in a fashion that wouldn't be pleasing to God, we speak up. And we say, hey, listen, you know, we don't have to act like that. We don't have to rip off our customers and lie to our our competitors. We could actually have win-win scenarios here, because that's what Jesus is about in that regard. Um, We could be, our company could give away a portion of our income. We could, our family could become more uh, generous, more caring. We could uh, invite people over um, that, uh, that, that, that need a nice meal. Uh, we could do everything we can to, to bring heaven to earth. So we pray. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in, on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying take charge of what we do and why we do it and how often we do it. And then we pray the prayer each morning, and then we all, I, I think if we pray this prayer, we're more likely to go out looking for ways that God can bring heaven to earth through us. And as the day unfolds, we're asking God for, to, to, to open our eyes to any interactions we might have, any chances we would have to represent heaven. If we pray this prayer, at some point the Father is going to re- reveal specific things for us to get out and do locally to bring God's ca- kingdom to earth. All right, let's keep moving. 
Give us this day our daily bread. So what does this mean? It means provide what we need for today, today. And only you know what we need. Now, I know what I think we need, but you know what we need. So daily bread is more than food, although it is food. It's also money and provision and health and uh, authority and whatever we need to get the job done. Lord, we, we pray that you would provide that for us. But what we're going to have to learn to do is live in today. Because tomorrow is uncertain. And it doesn't matter how rich you are, tomorrow is uncertain. So Lord, because tomorrow is uncertain, it's only certain to you, I'm going to live in the here and now, and then I'm going to trust that tomorrow you'll take care of us tomorrow. So what, he, what Jesus is teaching us 2,000 years before psychologists caught up with this is mindfulness. Have you ever heard about mindfulness? It's a really big word in psychology right now. What it means is doing what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Letting tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Let me quote Jesus here. Don't worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, thank you, Lord. <laughs> you know, each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, it's like, well, how about you fix that? No, I'm not going to fix it. I'm going to let you live through it. But I want you to live each day, one day at a time. Living in a mindful way can be so freeing, especially for those of us who stress way too much about the future. To be present in this moment is such a gift where we stop fretting about tomorrow, we live in today. What is unfolding now? Uh, and the way the Father has provided today could build your faith for tomorrow. Even after a tough day, you can end the day and go, yeah, we survived it. As tough as that was, God provided a way to survive it. And after a spectacular day, you can say, wow, God really gave us a great day. No matter what the challenge is, the past 24 hours presented, we can celebrate God's provision every single day. Every day can be a celebration in our life in the Lord's Prayer when we say, I prayed that you would give us our daily bread, and you did. Now, Father, as I lay my head down on this pillow and fall asleep, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm going to sleep. And when I wake up tomorrow, it'll be a new day, and I'll pray the prayer again, and I believe that you will provide for us Again, now for any of us who are, uh, are leading or responsible for a family or some kind of tribe, uh, this, can, this prayer properly prayed can release us from feeling like we're supposed to be the provider. We can say, Lord, you're the provider. Because, and, and you think about it, when you were a child, you didn't think about these things. Your parents provided, but as you grew, responsibility came, and at first it felt cool to be selected or to start the company and it's starting to succeed or to start the family. And you're like, you know, this is awesome. But then after a while, sometimes the responsibility gets very heavy on our shoulders. It affects our health. It affects our relationship. It affects our sleep. Jesus wants us to lean heavily on the Father and to learn to let him take the bulk of the load of providing. That doesn't mean we don't still work hard. It means that we understand where the blessings come from, where it even the opportunity to work comes from, and that we trust God on a more daily basis. Now, what's interesting is the poorer you are, the easier this is. Well, let's take away the word easy. The poorer you are, the simpler this is, because you don't have a choice. 
The more wealthy you are, the more you are cursed with thinking you don't need God for tomorrow or next week or the week after. I'm actually thinking way out into my retirement now, Lord. So if you could just dump a bunch of money there, that would be super duper. Thank you, Lord. And God's like, what happened to you? You used to pray every day for me to provide for you. And we used to have these great conversations. But now you don't need the, the manna. Now that you're in the promised land, you're drifting from me. And what are you doing? You're starting to worship other gods. And that's a different sermon. But Jesus would prefer that we just have a daily relationship with his father. What's cool is those of us that do have extra money, we still need the Lord daily. So if we could just say, these are the problems that my money probably could solve even if I didn't have God in my life. But these are all the challenges I'm facing that even if I had all the money in the world, I still can't heal my daughter from the disease she was just diagnosed from. I still can't make my marriage better. I still can't. There's things I still can't do. Well, then that's your daily bread. Lord, today, please provide for me the things that I don't already have. I'll thank you for the things I have, but I still need you. I still need you. So the more wealthy we become, a good mantra would be, I still need God. Let's all say that together. Uh, I still need God. And yes, you do. You just spoke the truth. All right, let's review. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. Come on. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Keep going. Give us our And the new part. Now, some of us were taught to say debts here. So we say trespasses to accommodate everybody around us, but you're supposed to say debts. Forgive us our debts. Well, newsflash, when Luke wrote this, he didn't use the word trespasses or debts. He used a different word, the word sins. And Luke didn't actually say the word sins, but as the King James translators were translating it, they said the word there sounds like this word sins that we have in English uh, vernacular. Now, uh, sin is a religious word, right? Right or wrong? Is sin a religious word or not? See, you don't know the answer. That's why you came to church. Sin is now a religious word. So if you said yes, you were correct. But sin wasn't always a religious word. In, in 1610, before the uh, King James Bible was published, sin wasn't anywhere found in religion. The word sin in English. Sin came from the pubs. Sin was a pub game. Yeah, so here's what it was. Sin was a game where you scratched, a, uh, you're in the pub in 1605, drinking grog or whatever they drank back then, and, uh, and you've got your tankard of ale. I, I don't know, I don't, I mean, seriously. Are you wearing those funny pants? I don't know. But anyway, you're playing this game, and you'd scratch a circle, and then everyone would take some paces, and you would turn it without a whole lot of aiming or anything. You would flick your knife at the wall, and everyone's knife who stuck within the center didn't sin. But everyone's knife was stuck out there or got the bartender or hit the floor. That was called a sin. So you had one sin. And then you'd play another round, play another round. And when you a certain number of points, then the winner was the person with the least amount of sins. And then they would gloat. Uh, and then the other guys would take a big drink. And then you'd start over. And the guys taking the big drink were the sinners. And that's how the Southern Baptists got that, by the way. Um, but anyway... So guess what? The more you drank, the more you sinned, and the more you sinned, the more you drank. And so the, the, the translators of the Bible said that's what sin is. It's shooting and missing. And so each miss 
uh, is tallied. And so they're saying at the end of life, your sins are going to be tallied like that. So sin is just thought of shooting at the target that God has scratched out and missing. So that's great. So you can do sins or trespasses or debts. And we're going to talk about this more in the podcast. So you'll want to tune into that. But Jesus takes it further from sins or trespasses or debts. He says, Father, we pray, forgive us our sins, our trespasses, or debts, as we forgive those who sinned or trespassed or owe us. And that's where it gets hard because Jesus is clearly saying that if our Father is going to forgive us our trespasses, we have to forgive uh, those who trespass against us. And, I mean, that's easy with small things. But what about big things? Yeah, Jesus is saying, well, I forgave you some big things. So I expect you to act, my kingdom is coming to earth, and my kingdom is a kingdom of grace, therefore you are going to forgive. And you know what's interesting is, he tells us to do this actually for our own benefit. Uh, he, he requires us to forgive because unforgiveness wrecks your health, wrecks your life, holds you back. The most free people on planet earth are the ones that are not planning revenge or holding a grudge. They just don't want to waste the energy. And according to Jesus, how can you receive forgiveness if your hands are still clenched with unforgiveness? So you have to open your hands to receive forgiveness. It's a process that happens at the same time. The truth about grace is we don't really know if we fully received it until we're giving it out. And, uh, And whenever I give myself permission to withhold forgiveness, it probably means I've forgotten the sheer magnitude of everything God has forgiven me of. If I, if I would just remember how offensive my sin is to God, then I would realize that nothing anyone has done to me is more offensive than that. And honestly, pardon is the only way out for human beings. Forgiveness breeds forgiveness. Unforgiveness breeds everything else that's evil and wrong and dark. And you know what's interesting is, with, for the big stuff, we don't have to just forgive on our own. We don't have to muster up the energy to forgive. We can actually ask God to give us the extra grace for that person. Now, I learned this from my grandpa, Joe, to just allow God to uh, allow his mercy to flow through us. I've talked to you about my grandpa, Joe, before. Uh, his life was, 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 a, was a crazy life, not always good. Uh, he was a Southern Colorado cowboy, a wiry little man living on a scrubby little ranch north of La Junta, uh, Colorado. And Grandpa was a part of the sheriff's posse. And in the Old West, they still have the sheriff's posse. Well, Livermore, I think, still has the sheriff's posse, or our county. And what the sheriff's posse is, is the volunteers that like to dabble in law enforcement and like to help whenever they're needed. And so they train them. They have uniforms and badges and guns. And, you know, I used to be so proud of my Grandpa. And they would ride in the parades there in Rocky Ford and La Junta and stuff. And We'd wave at Grandpa up there riding his horse with his uniform on. But it was more than just riding horses and wearing a uniform. They really were deputized and called out. Like when the, the fair was in Rocky Ford, there wasn't enough law enforcement. So they'd call out the, all the, the posse to be deputized to act as law enforcement and help uh, when there was special needs. So it was during one of those times when my uh, grandfather was uh, called out in the middle of the night, put his uniform on, and went out to help uh, the sheriff's deputies on a domestic violence call. And they went out, and the whole family, and this was a family that was well-known to the peace officers, and by the time they got there, the whole family was drunk and out in the front yard shooting at each other. And so as soon as law enforcement came, it actually escalated, and all the guns got pointed to the the peace officers, and all these people are drunk. 
And uh, so uh, one of the guys pointed a shotgun at my grandpa's best friend, Chris. And when, when, when grandpa thought Chris was going to get shot, he, he yelled at the guy to distract him. And the guy turned and at point blank range shot him. And my grandpa instinctively covered his heart, but that then he blew off his arm. And his heart was okay, but his arm was gone. And uh, he spent the rest of his life learning to function with just his left, uh, left hand. And, uh, and he spent the rest of his life really bitter at the guy who had taken away his ability to not need. My grandpa loved not needing you. Uh, he wanted you to need him because he was a tough old cowboy. And so now he couldn't even button his own shirt, and he hated a lot about life for the next 20 years. And he had this intense bitterness toward this man. And he actually followed this man's uh, story. The guy ends up in prison and dies in prison. And even when he, my grandpa said, I hope he burns in hell. I hope he burns. I mean, he, he was so bitter. And my grandpa also struggled with uh, phantom pain. I don't know if you know what phantom pain is or you've had it. Phantom pain is when you don't have... It's like, why, why, why do you feel like your fist is clenched? You don't have a fist. But clear up in his shoulder for, for years, his fist would just clench, and then he wouldn't be able to sleep. He wouldn't be able to, and he'd rub it. And he'd, my grandma would rub his arm and all that. And uh, because there was this phantom pain, he felt like his, his invisible fist was clenched. So during this time, uh, a, a good thing was happening too. Our family finally succeeded in leading grandpa to Christ and then in the process after that, from then until he, when he passed, we saw him recover from addictions and recover from anger. He read the Bible through. He believed it literally, and he would quote the Bible to us as if we didn't know it. And it was true. He'd say, well, don't you know God heals? And we're like, yeah, well, then pray. And we'd be like, all right. Um, and as he re- received forgiveness from many of his sins, Jesus started talking to him. He called Jesus, he called God Big Jimmy. Can't make that up. And he would tell us, you know, I was talking to Big Jimmy, and he wants me to forgive that old, you know, so-and-so that shot my arm off. And I don't know how I'm going to do that. I do not know how I'm going to do that. And he really wrestled with that. And, uh, and then he figured out, well, wait, I could just give, I could just tell God that I'm not going to stand in the way. So he says, I told Big Jimmy, if he wants to forgive this knucklehead, and he even wants to take him to heaven, I'm not going to stand in the way. <laughs> you know? Little guy, God, I'm not going to stand in your way, so just go ahead and do what you do. And uh, what he figured out is that he could forgive the man if he would allow God to forgive the man. And he read about Jesus forgiving the men that, had, that were crucifying him. And he read, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And he, he figured out that guy was drunk. He didn't shoot me because he hated me. He didn't even know my name. He didn't know what he was doing. So if Jesus can, I can't. And he processed this, and he forgave the guy. And, uh, and, he, and then later, you couldn't get him to say a bad word about this guy. And, uh, and he really forgave him. And then in the year before he died, he would tell us that somehow his fist was unclenched. And he associated that with forgiveness. And he died with, with hands wide open. And uh, it was such a powerful thought that how unforgiveness can keep you in pain. Long after the wound is healed, uh, you can still have these internal uh, wounds because of what you're still holding on to. All right, we're going to run out of time. Uh, if I don't, uh, the next phrase, lead us not. And I love this one because so much Christian coasting is about staying near the temptation and resisting it. And friends, that doesn't work. 
uh, we pray to the Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, Lord, there's a temptation right now. Either get the temptation out of here or get me out of here. Uh, often when we're tempted, we would love to believe that we're strong enough, you know, to sit with our friends in a bar, even though we're an alcoholic. Uh, we're strong enough to uh, have pornography available to us, even though we stumbled all the time. And, but we're still, like, hesitant to have uh, someone else, you know, where we put those controls on our phone, where someone else sees that we're trying to access pornography. And, but we don't do it. Why? Oh, because I'm strong enough now. I have the Holy Spirit. Listen, no, you're not. And so what we say is, God, help me to, to work with you to get temptation out of my life, far from me. And research at Cambridge, Cambridge University proved that the farther away temptation is from you, the, the less likely you are to fall. So what they did is they took all these people and they got them in different rooms and then they asked them, what type of things tempt you? Is it cookies? Is it cigarettes? Is it porn? Is it, what is it? Uh, online shopping, uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, I don't know. But uh, back then they just said, so what we're going to do is we're going to let you pre-select the temptations that are going to be near you and then the ones that are going to be harder to get to. So the people did that and then they, they hooked up their brainwaves and they watched them as the guy would look over at the pack of cigarettes and then they, the brain would go crazy and they could, they could tell when the guy was going to take the cigarette and smoke it by what they were seeing going on in his brain. But then he, you, they could tell he's thinking about something else. And they, of course, they, could, they don't know what he's thinking about. But later he'd say, yeah, I was thinking about that cookie jar that was way out there and those really good chocolate chip cookies that I love. That I told you guys, those are the ones I really love. But they were way out of the room in a cabinet and I had to take the key and whatever. I just went, ah, forget it. The further away you are from temptation. And so this is actually written in the, the scientific report. Here's what it says. And I quote, a better strategy than avoiding a full cookie jar near you is to have no cookie jar in the room at all. <laughs> they got a government grant in order to... <laughs> so if we're smart, we'll, we'll take the advice of either the Bible or Cambridge University and, and not stay near any opportunity for very long that we know full well has caused us to, to stumble in the past. So we pray, Father, lead me away from temptation. Deliver me from evil. And the beautiful thing is, it forces us to admit what really tempts us, to stop being dishonest with ourselves, and to say, that one, that's where I'm really tempted. And then we say, Lord, in that regard, get me away from that temptation and help me be willing to be led away from temptation. And something really powerful happens when we do that. We actually take the power of the temptation away. And when we don't do that, we allow the temptation to retain its power. A person who's honest with themselves and with God is much more uh, likely to succeed. Um, and acting like we're not tempted is just foolish because it keeps us from honest and humble accountability. It may be embarrassing for you to admit what tempts you, but it's more embarrassing to fall. So you have to decide which am uh, I going to do. And I appreciate how Jesus says, deliver us from evil, as if there's real evil behind the temptation. So the Lord's prayer is more than, Lord, help me not to goof up today. It's like, Lord, help the devil not to win today. You know, the Apostle Peter said, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers 
throughout the world. I like that. You know, and anyone who says, well, that's dumb, the devil's not real. You know, you're just like a herd of sheep and the lion's out there. And, you, you know, half of you can't even believe there are lions. And you're just easy pickings. Uh, so the existence of a real devil is part of real Christian theology and a devil that wants to stumble you so that he can pay God back for kicking him out of heaven. So we'd be fools not to ask God for spiritual protection. I remember my grandma Hannah, she always used to pray for us grandkids that the Lord would put a hedge of protection around us. And that's the coolest thought, you know, this big old, and I was a kid, you know, visualized this big old thorny hedge growing up and the devil can't get, can't get through. And, uh, and, and that, that's just a cool thought for a little kid. All right, let's finish it up. Let's look at the last phrase. For yours... Now, as much as we love to pray this line, it's probably true that this was added about 100 years after the Lord first gave us the Lord's Prayer. It was probably added in the 2nd century by great Christians who just wanted to end it with worship. So there's nothing wrong with praying it either with or without this line, but because I grew up praying it with this line, uh, that's what I still uh, do. Uh, and that's, that's, that's about a wrap. Uh, today we've been talking about a prayer that Christians have been praying since Jesus delivered it. Uh, AD 30. Uh, it's hard to imagine how many times, millions of times, this prayer has been prayed in every earthly language uh, since then. And this is one of the greatest traditions that we're a part of, is to pray the prayer the Lord taught us to pray. So let's wrap up. Let's stand. And let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Worship team's coming out, and after we pray, we're going to sing it. Pray with me. Our Father, your name is holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.